Welcome to the 14th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we are also the hosts of the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? The coronavirus remains remarkably consistent in its behavior but people remain remarkably inconsistent. The virus has not changed over the four months we've been talking about it. On this show, Coronavirus, The Truth. In regular social situations, it has an R naught of close to three, meaning one person will transmit the infection to almost three people. Put people in closer contact, particularly indoors, and an infected person will transmit it to more than three. Put people in a large crowd, they'll spread the coronavirus to even more wear masks and keep six feet apart, and the transmission declines. Like all viruses, this particular coronavirus has hundreds of slightly different mutated forms, but all act similarly. Unlike many viruses, warmer weather hasn't changed, either its transmissibility or its lethality. As such, everything we saw this week was predictable. But people reacted as though they were shocked at the numbers they saw. As social distancing guidelines were eased across the nation, 21 states saw a significant increase in infections and hospitalizations. What else would you expect? And three weeks from now, when the number of daily deaths rise, people will be surprised when we know that's going to happen. That's all being reported now as well. Shocking to me was that in response to this information, The Dow Jones fell by 1,800 points, or over 6%. The stock market is reputed to always be looking into the future. What about this information was unexpected? Why wasn't all of it factored into the stock prices? Jeremy, people keep talking about a second wave. This isn't a second wave. It's a condition of the first. When you heat water and it boils and evaporates, the water vapor produced isn't a new substance. It's a predictable result of the temperature rising to 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees centigrade. One last point. The national numbers are overly impacted by New York City due to two factors. The first is the massive size of the population, and the second is the huge number of people who had been infected. That led two months ago to an inflated number of cases being reported nationally Compared to the experience in most geographies, it wasn't as bad in most locations as the numbers would have implied. And now the reverse is being seen. The new rates seem overly low in comparison to the overly elevated ones we experienced before. As a result, the total numbers nationally can be declining 
when most places are seeing a greater incidence in their local geography. This is not complex mathematics, but it's not being well understood. Robbie, this swinging to extremes seems very counterproductive and dangerous. What can we do about it? The solution is to require clear communication for elected officials. Each time they change policy, they should tell people what they are doing when it occurs and what are they going to do when the expected outcome happens. We're taking steps to decrease social distancing. We expect the infection rate will rise. Let's say 10%. Now, what's going to happen if it goes up 10%? Nothing should happen. That was the plan. If it goes up 30% or maybe hospitalizations rise 20%, then officials should be telling us that's when they will be reversing the easing ability. My sense is that people are afraid of the truth and somehow believe that if they don't state the facts, the predictable won't happen, or at least they won't get blamed when it does. When I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I tell students that CEOs who are the most successful at managing change during crisis not only make the best decisions, but communicate the information about them broadly and effectively. Let's take an example relative to the coronavirus. Every school district's gonna to have to decide this fall whether to open. There's no right choice. Keep schools closed and students will fall farther behind. Keep kids socially isolated and there'll be psychological consequences. On the other hand, open the schools and the number of cases of coronavirus will increase. And as a result, there'll be a rise in the number of adults who contact COVID-19 and an added number of hospitalizations. I personally believe that opening them with the right precautions is what is needed. In order to decide whether to send children to school once they open, parents need to understand the best medical recommendations on limiting the spread and what they need to do in that context. That includes the vital roles for masks. It requires them being flexible, different school hours to permit smaller class sizes, and six-foot physical distancing at recess. Parents have to understand why it is vitally important that they not send their children to school with any symptoms, unlike what they do maybe in a typical winter when their children have a running nose. And parents need to recognize the consequences that if families violate these restrictions and the number of cases rise to unexpected levels, the schools will close. And there's a need to explain what unacceptable levels means. Is it 10%, 20%, 30%? These are the kinds of clear communications that parents could understand, can follow, and have a confidence. Instead, this announcement, we've decided to open the schools, we've decided to keep them closed, or we're gonna run restricted hours without providing the context that people need and want. 
providing the information in a forward-looking way is, a, is contingency planning. Contingency planning is a standard practice for all businesses. Unexpected things happen, and agility and flexibility are needed. But when the highly probable occurs, no one should be surprised. There needs to be a clear playbook. And I don't see one when it comes to the coronavirus. Like a hiker in the woods, Jeremy, we seem to be stumbling from tree to tree rather than looking up and seeing the mountain in the distance and having a clear destination and a specific direction to head to get there. Nothing that happened this week was unexpected. What numbers on new infections should have been was a non-event. Instead, it made front page headlines. Robbie, there was another major confusion this past week over the science of the transmission of the coronavirus. Uh, this one involving the World Health Organization, uh, which has led to many uh, people being even more frustrated and distrusting of the WHO. Uh, can you explain to listeners what happened? You're right, Jeremy. There was total confusion. The Annals of Internal Medicine one of the most respected medical journals reported that as many as 40 to 45% of coronavirus cases may be asymptomatic. And they suggested the virus might have greater potential to spread silently and deeply through the human population than we thought. A day or so later, an official from the World Health Organization stated that asymptomatic spread appears to be, in quotes, Rare. That's right, rare. In the same week, one study says almost half of the cases are asymptomatic and spread and could be a major source of infection. And a couple of days later, the WHO calls it rare. The public health implications and consequences of asymptomatic spread are massive. If the research from the adults is correct, Corralling and controlling this virus is impossible. Masks and six-foot distancing, vital. If the WHO is right, then we should be putting in checkpoints in almost every location and communities to find the people with symptoms and not worry about anyone without a cough, fever, or difficulty breathing. If the article in the Annals is right, herd immunity is the best chance of control until there's a vaccine. If the WHO is right, we should be putting in place intense efforts to simultaneously find everyone with symptoms and then test and isolate them with a high probability that we could eradicate this virus. I'm reminded of the comic who pretended to be a sports announcer and said, now the baseball scores, seven to four, three nothing, two to one in 10 innings. Technically, the announcer was correct, but for the audience, the information was useless. The Harvard Global Institute said in response to the controversy, quote, all the best evidence suggests that people without symptoms can and do readily spread SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. In fact, some evidence suggests that people may be the most infectious in the days before they become symptomatic. That is in the pre-symptomatic phase when they feel well, have no symptoms, but may be shedding substantial amounts of virus. 
the WHO sort of backtracked. It said that all the spokesperson meant was that we don't know for certain and that it's not been determined about the spread. Now, it's true we don't know for certain. It's also true there's lots of things we don't know for certain about this virus or in medicine at all. But what we do is we figure out what's most probable and we follow that course. It's one thing to try to conclude whether this type of transmission happens 20 versus 25% of the time. That takes huge databases to be sure. But zero versus 50%? That should be relatively easy to determine. Now, part of this controversy was definitional. Is someone without symptoms today who will be coughing and febrile in four days asymptomatic? It's an interesting question, but not the most important strategic one. The issue is whether the person walking down the grocery store aisle or sitting in the restaurant at the next table who feels fine and looks healthy might have a high chance of transmitting the virus or none. It won't matter whether they become sick in several days and end up in bed. It will to them, of course. But to you, what you want to know is can they be giving you the virus despite the fact that they don't have any symptoms? What we do with data often is a matter of opinion. Given a high rate of transmission from asymptomatic people, we might mandate masks everywhere. We might delay opening indoor eating or conference center events. These are questions of personal risk versus personal benefit. And the magnitude of each varies by who is looking at the data. But the scientific facts are not questions of opinion. In a half day of moderated conversation, the different experts could explain the studies they're reading and their interpretation of each. They could discuss why they're relying on different data sets, if they are. They could tell the public if the confusion is a result of having too few people in each of the studies. That would be a statistical issue. Or whether the results for multiple studies were simply contradictory. That could be a research design issue. Or it could be an issue of a different definition of the same word being applied in each study. Once we understand the problems, resolving them are not that hard. In most cases, the data can be reanalyzed that afternoon based upon a consensus, and by the next morning, a clear plan reached. Instead, one respected journal says 50%, and a respected international organization says rare. Again, for listeners, there are multiple issues about this coronavirus that can't be answered, at least not yet. Will the virus mutate? Will warm weather reduce the virulence? When will a vaccine be available? There are other details we don't yet know about the course of the disease, such as why do some people become very sick and others asymptomatic? Why are children relatively safe? Or the exact difference in risk for people who congregate inside a building versus outside, but for areas like the transmission rate for asymptomatic versus symptomatic people, this is a question we should be able to quickly ascertain and calculate within a narrow range, not close to zero versus 50%. The WHO, an agency that failed to lead as it was designed to do at the start of this pandemic, 
seems to be continuing to trip over its own feet. Robbie, the political debate continues to rage over the use of masks. Um, Is there any new information? Jeremy, researchers from Britain's Cambridge and Greenwich Universities recently published their findings in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. Their studies demonstrated that homemade masks dramatically reduce the transmission rates from this coronavirus, assuming enough people wear them. And they conclude that the combination of people wearing masks, keeping six feet apart, and avoiding coming in contact with others who are sick would be an acceptable way to manage the pandemic and the reopening activities. They reference the R value and the need to keep it under one based on the choices people make. They show that wearing masks routinely in public is twice as effective at reducing the R value than if masks are worn after symptoms appear. And that routine mask use by 50% or more of the population could decrease COVID-19 to an R of less than one. When I compare every medication that has been touted to prevent or treat this viral disease and compare it to the simple step of people wearing a mask, the contrast is stark. Put all the medications together and their efficacy is less than one or 2%, while universal mask wearing would accomplish a massive amount in comparison at avoiding infection and saving lives. And yet, this is not where the media or people focus. The miscalculation of interest reminds me of how enthralled a nation is with the newest multi-million dollar machine, a $100,000 drug for cancer or heart disease that often makes a tiny difference and how little attention the median people pay to proven, highly effective means of prevention. A listener asked about the latest thinking on the coronavirus and sexual transmission. Uh, What is the current public thought? The New York City Health Department recently presented its recommendations around sex during coronavirus pandemics. They note that the virus could be transmitted through sexual relations, but that the question hadn't been fully examined. But overall, most likely, this round of transmission is of very minor significance. In an important pivot, they then focused on what we can do. Close contact between people's mouths and noses is the proven and most significant route of transmission. What I've noticed in this pandemic is how interested people are about the rarities of the infection. Can it be spread by tigers or whether paper bags that home delivery food services use could be a source of infection? Maybe the answer is yes, maybe it's no, but the total number of people infected by either route will be close to zero while coughing and sneezing will transmit the virus 99% of the cases. Whether people wear masks during sex, as the agency suggests, is a different question. But for anyone looking to avoid the virus, the agency points out that they need to approach the question of partners the same as they would for any sexually transmitted disease, not because of the exchange of sex-specific bodily fluids, but because transmission happens in the same way in private settings as it does in public ones. This is a respiratory virus. It's transmitted by the exchange of saliva or by air as part of breathing or coughing. It happens in close relationships to others, and all of this are common occurrences in intimate situations. 
And the same hierarchy of risk exists for coronavirus as for other, in quotes, sexually transmitted diseases. A single partner you know well, who will tell you at the first sign of symptoms is the safest. Multiple partners you know well is next. And random partners you'll never see again, they're the most risky. When it comes to relying on others for your health, trust is the vital currency. Due to the reopening of the economy, large gatherings, uh, less people wearing masks, and the massive crowds at protests across the nation, we're hearing that we might be in the beginning of another surge. Uh, what do you think this surge will look like? Uh, do you think we'll have to have more lockdowns? Do you think people won't tolerate more lockdowns? Will we need to reopen all of the field hospitals we previously opened and then closed? Um, what's and, and I guess ultimately, what's the difference between a surge in this potential wave in the fall we keep hearing about? Jeremy, as we've said in this show multiple times, this coronavirus is a simple virus in how it spreads. As we ease social distancing, the rate of infection will rise. Anyone who acts surprised is either uninformed or in denial. However, the data also says that keeping some degree of social distancing through a combination of masks and six-foot six spacing, along with an increasing percentage of the population having protective antibodies, should be able to prevent the problems our nation and doctors feared in the past. This will not be a second wave it's just going to be a continuation of the first. If we totally eliminate the precautions, we could see what you're describing. But I don't believe that is what public health and government officials will recommend. And I don't believe that's what people will do. As such, I don't think we will need to reopen field hospitals or go back into lockdown. Because I have confidence that people will use the modicum of sensibility required. As the economy reopens, a lot of people are still without jobs, lost their businesses, or have had some serious financial damage done to their businesses that will take years to fix, if ever. Uh, I think most people are okay with how the virus was handled initially in terms of shutting down aspects of the economy until we knew more about the virus. Now, though, people see that it hasn't hit as bad as we were told it could, um, we know the virus is still dangerous, especially for the elderly and autoimmune compromised. Um, but for younger and healthier people, it's not as deadly as we had feared. Um, I think at some point in the future, Robbie, you know, we'll need to do an autopsy show of how the virus was handled uh, every stage. But for now, some people are saying that we overreacted for far too long or, or even going so far as to say that the virus was a hoax. Um we have others saying that we're easing restrictions way too fast and we're being irresponsible. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the different ways different areas are easing restrictions across the country? You know, obviously what works in New York wouldn't work in rural Iowa and vice versa. And, and I guess, what are your thoughts on the different ways it's being handled as being viewed? And in hindsight, did we shut down too hard for too long? Jeremy, as you know well, there's not an East Coast coronavirus and a Midwest coronavirus and a West Coast coronavirus. There's only one virus, and it behaves the same way across the entire United States. What varies is the density of the population and the actions people take in response to the risks. Anyone who thinks this virus is a hoax 
is delusional. I know too many people who have died to label it anything besides a lethal contagion. Having said that, an infected person in a subway of New York has a hugely different impact than one in the rural areas of Iowa. In a recent Forbes article that I wrote on using the Pareto Principle, or the so-called 80-20 rule, to approach the coronavirus, I pointed out that we have undertreated those at greatest risk and overtreated those at low risk. One size doesn't fit all. In places like New York, with its constant crowding, or New Orleans with the Mardi Gras, we fail to recognize the imminent danger. Probably in parts of rural Iowa, we went too far. Similarly, for those at high risk, particularly in skilled nursing facilities, we fail to take the depth of action needed. And for those at low risk, we overly constrain them rather than educating them, as we should have, about the risk of spreading the infection to grandparents and helping them to avoid doing so. As such, in many urban areas and for many high-risk populations, we slowed too slowly and eased too fast. And in many rural places and low-risk populations, we eased too fast, but slowed too slowly. Jeremy, you're a student of history. Many have compared the coronavirus to war. When I look back and compare conflicts like World War II versus Vietnam, I see major differences in how Americans responded. I see elements of both reactions in play when it comes to the current coronavirus pandemic. What are your thoughts? Robby, I think uh, fighting any pandemic has a lot of parallels to fighting a war. Um, I actually think we could probably do a whole episode on that. When I look at the lead up to World War II, for example, I see a big parallel between that and the coronavirus before it hit the United States. As the novel coronavirus spread in China and then into Europe, ravaging places like Northern Italy, many in the United States did not take the threat of the virus seriously thinking, you know, it would never come here or, or, or that it wouldn't be so bad. Um, in the lead up to World War II, many in America saw what was happening uh, with the German and Japanese nationalism and, and aggression and saw it as dangerous, but didn't take that threat seriously. Heck, I mean, Adolf Hitler won Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1938. It took Pearl Harbor to really unify the majority of the country and realize that Germany and Japan posed a threat like we had never seen before. That being said, there were still people openly protesting going to war, but Pearl Harbor was a wake-up call. World War II unified the country in a way I would say only 9-11 has done since. Um, in World War II, America had some of the most legendary military leaders of all time, Eisenhower, MacArthur, Patton, and more. Uh, the United States came out of World War II an economic powerhouse and emerged as one of two superpowers after the war. The coronavirus ravaging nursing homes in the Pacific Northwest should have been COVID-19's Pearl Harbor in the United States, but it wasn't. Uh, leadership in America uh, continued to flounder at all levels and point the finger at the other political party while refusing to acknowledge their own shortcomings. In my opinion, this was not a failure of Trump specifically or of Democrats specifically. It was a failure of leadership across the board. 
It looks now, though, as the virus is much less deadly than we had feared, furthering distrust in our leadership, even though at the time no one knew just how bad it was going to be. What is happening now is much more similar to the Vietnam War in that national morale is extremely low, support for how the virus is being fought is low, people doubt we should have had the lockdowns at all. And I would argue this is actually the most divided America has ever been since the Civil War. I might even say it's a more concerning divide because it's not being broken up geographically the same way it was in the Civil War. Not to mention, we don't have a Lincoln or a Grant or a Sherman right now. I do think we could make a very strong comparison, though, between General McClellan and uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo. Um, I won't spend a ton of time on, on fleshing it out, but McClellan led the Army of the Potomac and then the entire Union Army early in the war. He and Lincoln had a mutual distrust and frustration with each other, both kind of thinking the other was incompetent. McClellan was often praised by the press in spite of his painful and and very deadly missteps, which arguably led to many more casualties than should have happened, Uh, much like how Cuomo was praised early on. But in hindsight, his forcing nursing homes to take on COVID-positive patients was likely the deadliest misstep in the ongoing battle against the coronavirus to date. It was not handled well in New York from a leadership perspective. Jeremy, along those lines... How do you predict historians will talk about our current response to this viral pandemic, let's say, 25 years from now? Robbie, I think this question is very interesting for a wide variety of reasons. I think there's a very, very good chance that when we look back at the coronavirus pandemic, we may not look at it as a virus that the initial response was floundered and some major cities were hit pretty hard. I was actually, you know, like I said earlier, looking forward to doing an episode on this topic with you once the pandemic is over, a postmortem, if you will, where we did a deep dive and analyzed the handling of it from beginning to end. And, and I still think we should. But the thing is, I'm actually thinking there's a very good chance that the this virus and the handling of it will be a much, much, much bigger moment in history than people realize. Like I said earlier, World War II brought Americans together for the most part. It unified us. It made us an economic powerhouse. We are arguably more divided as a nation than we were even in the Civil War. We were heavily divided before the virus came here. Then we shut businesses down, and then people lost their jobs. People were forced to stay inside for long periods of time and away from their friends, affecting their mental health. And then there is the fear of the silent enemy. Then the George Floyd killing happened in Minneapolis by police, and it sparked protests and riots across the country. Civil unrest made worse by the damaged economy. We are seeing and hearing things that even a few months ago would be unheard of. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, people having serious conversations about defunding or abolishing police departments, police resigning and leaving in record numbers, saying they don't feel supported by their leaders. This civil unrest slash divide uh, and the economic difficulties at home could have us legitimately lose our spot as the world's superpower to to China. Uh, Who knows what's going to happen at this point? It's too early to know for sure. But in my opinion, there is an extremely good chance that this pandemic could be looked back on as a spark 
that led to something more and forever changed the fabric of America, if not the world. Not to sound too dark, but I highly recommend the book, The End is Always Near by George Carlin, the hit podcast host of Hardcore History. Epidemics are one of the kinds of events in history that often set off a chain reaction of other events that have very serious consequences and often change things forever. You know, honestly, I think we should revisit this conversation in a year from now and, and, and see kind of where we're at with, with what happened. Robbie, as you look at the past and present, what do you see? Jeremy, to try to put our response and our viewpoint into perspective, I'd go all the way back to Greek mythology. Homer in the Odyssey described Odysseus's search to return home after the Trojan War. His 10-year journey involved numerous trials and tribulations. Along the way, he confronted the need to pass through the narrow strait of Messina. On one side lived a sea monster named Scylla, with six terrifying heads, each filled with three rows of gnashing teeth. Should Odysseus steer his men towards that side, the beast would emerge from his cave and consume half a dozen sailors. On the other side of the strait, the men would encounter Charybdis, a smoking, gurgling, massive whirlpool capable of swallowing the whole ship. For Odysseus, it was a win-lose situation. His only choice was to select the lesser of two evils. And in this case, it was Skyla. In contrast, when it comes to the coronavirus, we have not just two choices, but a range of options. Unfortunately, all are imperfect. I believe that historians will judge the American people well and nearly all of our leaders poorly. As a nation, we didn't have the protective gear needed in our hospitals. We didn't take action soon enough when we saw the threat rising. We didn't have a clear strategy that was well communicated. We didn't segment the population by risk, and instead, we tried to make one size fit all. We spent trillions of dollars unnecessarily and lost tens of thousands of extra lives. And the list goes on. And yet the American people show gratitude, resilience, and a willingness to sacrifice. There's still time for our nation's leaders and policy experts to redeem themselves. The final chapters have yet to be written. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comments to the host, visit our contact page on our website or send us a, a message on one of our social media platforms. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.